know better than the rest of us. And it causes those people to have a skepticism, a cynicism about the belief called Christianity, maybe even uh, about Jesus Christ himself, because if these people who call themselves followers of Christ are no better than the rest of us, could it possibly be true? I would say that's more of a a feeling-based decision or a feeling-based observation. Christians are no better than the rest of us. The third one, many of the ills or problems in the world are due to Christians and Christianity. Um, There are some of those. I think some of that is a misperception and a misguided feeling and intellectual inquiry into the history of Christianity. Um, We don't have time to go into that. Maybe we will in uh, a future sermon in this series. But Christianity has done a lot of great things for the world. But some people have determined that it is the cause of the problems in, in our world. So now I know many of us here may not say any of those things about Christianity or about Christians because you are one. You don't want to, you know, lambast yourself. So you might not say that, but how would you respond to those statements? That's kind of what we want to delve into in this series. How would you respond to Christianity as a myth? I I think a lot of Christians would say this, unfortunately. I don't know if it's a myth or not, but I still like believing it in any way. Wow. Got a lot of work to do then, maybe on the truth side of things. Uh, because if you don't know if it's a myth or not, as a follower of Christ, that is something that you might want to journey towards is knowing for sure. Is this real or is it Memorex? Does anybody remember that commercial? 1980s. Okay. Memorex was a tape. Okay. Never mind. Maybe uh, some of us in this room, Christians included, would say this, Christians should care more for people regardless of what is true or not true. We should care more for people. That's true. We could always do that. But they say it in the context of regardless of what's true or not true, we should just care. Can you see that that's a more feeling-oriented approach to a belief system and a religion and a, a relationship called Christianity? Third, Maybe Christians would say this, the world needs more love and less dogma. Ah, the world needs more love and less dogma. Does the world need more love? Probably. Does it need less dogma? Well, if you look at dogma in the stance of its negative connotation, that it's just a pharisaical or or black and white approach to all things in the world, very rigid Uh, very uh, lack of understanding of of some of the ills and how the gospel can apply to different situations. Yeah, maybe does need less dogma, but when I think of dogma, I think of it in the truly theological or even intellectual understanding of that word. It's a belief system based on propositional truth and facts that we can stand on and say, I don't feel something right here, but I know this is true. Um, The world needs more love, And in the true sense of the word dogma, maybe it needs more dogma as well. And then the last one, which is my favorite, maybe a Christian would say this, why don't all these stupid people believe the same facts I do? Some of us live in that world. I've got my theology. It is perfect in its, you know, in its understanding of the top 100 points of Christianity. And why don't you believe the same facts that I do? A lot of times those people seem to be very unloving. So what is it? Is Christianity true 
Does it make truth statements? Or is it a way for us to be more loving and live a more loving life and disregard whether it's true or not? Believe it or not, this is one, I believe, one of the central questions for Christians in our day as we enter what researchers and sociologists are calling a pre-Christian era in the history of Christianity. We have gone beyond post-Christianity. We've gone beyond all of the you know, other stuff. We are now in a pre-Christian phase, meaning there is very little understanding of what Christianity is about. And I believe 2nd and 3rd John, believe it or not, is a great way to approach uh, this particular question. Is it truth or is it love? Those who wrote the Bible, including John, who wrote this book and the and second and third John, these two letters, let's look at what he says about Christianity at the very beginning of, uh, of Christian history. In the first century, what did he say of who we are and who we follow? So let's look at second and third John. Let me give you some background on this book. The author, of course, is, you can say it louder, John. Good. You're with me. Thank you. The author is John, the son of Zebedee, and he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was also the author of the book of Revelation. Um, This was probably, these letters were probably written towards the end of the first century, and most likely John lived in the area near Ephesus, which was in, it's in Greece still, and, and it was in that part of the Roman world. And he was a pastor to different churches and helped be an elder in different churches around that area. And so as a pastor and elder of some of the surrounding churches until he actually died, he had a very pastoral or shepherding heart towards his people. He wanted to give them guidance. He wanted to give them instruction. He wanted to give them encouragement. And most importantly, he wanted them to know the truth and how it related to love and how love related to truth. Because, as we see in verse 1, and this is the first teaching, I believe, of this passage, truth and love are connected. Truth and love are connected. Now, you might be saying, oh yeah, I agree. Truth and love are connected. Well, the question that you might want to ask yourself is, do you care about truth? And, And do you regard it as something that is important to know? Or would you prefer just to love people? And that is the purest expression of what Christians are to do. Or are you more uh, on the side of, I'm just going to love and and disregard truth, or I'm more on the side of truth, and I don't really need to care about what people think or feel or how I approach them because I know all the answers to all the Bible questions. Ask yourself that question because in this one verse, it's pretty important to see that truth, or love, uh, truth and love are connected and they are also a, a sign that we are followers of Christ. Okay, so let's unpack this first verse. It talks about the elect lady. Um, this uh, uh, scholars, some scholars had said this was referring to the church and most scholars disagree with that. Most scholars say that the elect lady is a real woman in a church that John knew She was obviously a mother because it talks about her children later on in this uh, few verses. And it's unknown where the father is, but knowing the historical setting of where this takes place, the father had probably died. So this was a widow raising her children 
and doing a very good job of it according to the standard that Scripture says and according to the standard that John says she should be doing it. Now, little side note, if you're a single mom, we are with you. We're with you. And, and I know it's a struggle. I know um, many single moms, and it is a struggle to raise children in this culture as a single mom to love and follow Jesus Christ. I want to say as a side note, if you need help, if you need anything from this church, we want to be about helping those who are in that difficult situation. Maybe you got it dialed in and you can teach us um, about how to get it dialed in. But if you you need that help, we want to offer that to you. Please come and speak to one of of our pastors and we would love to to work with you as best we can and help you in, in whatever way we can. Now he says, John says, to the elect lady and her children... And then he says this phrase, which is very important, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. Kind of a strange phrase. Some scholars said that it meant he really loved them. Okay? I think that there is more than that to, uh, to this phrase. I believe that there is an affection that John has for this woman and her children. And there is also a connection. So let's talk about those two things. An affection and a connection. Good pastors always rhyme some of their points. Okay? Affection, connection. There is a love, a feeling, a sense of something inside that isn't just intellectual. Okay? We'll get to that in a second. But there is an, uh, uh, an affection, that's the best word for it, for this woman. And, and it's not a romantic affection. It is a heartfelt Christian love for this woman. And I believe it's rooted in the connection that, that John has with her. And what is the connection? The, the affection that he has is rooted in the connection that they have around the truth. Our church is weak not New City Church, but the church in Western civilization is weak because we are not connected around the truth. We are connected about our feelings maybe about the truth. We are connected maybe around um, more of the external behavior things that we are to do for our culture and for our cities, which is true, we should do those things. But we try to connect things, we try to connect our hearts as followers of Christ with each other around something other than the truth. And John says in this phrase, we are connected and I have an affection for you because we're connected around the truth. In the Gospel of John, he calls it the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, those are Jesus' words. He wrote those words down and Jesus is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So our truth is rooted in Jesus. You can think about all of the great things um, that Christians should be doing in our cities, in our culture, and, and around the world, and all of those things are true. But if we aren't connected around the truth of Jesus Christ, he is the representation of the truth, then we, we will never have um, the affection for each other that we should have because it will, it will be undergirded by something other than Jesus. And then he says, whom I love in truth, and then he says this, all who know the truth, okay? So, and not only I, he says in verse one, but also all who know the truth. They're also connected. They're also having affection for each other and for this woman and her children. All who know the truth. The affection and connection has spread to all those who know the 
truth. Okay? The root of their connection is in the truth. We are bound together because of a truth that we believe. Okay? We are bound together because of a truth that we believe. Christians have a special affection for one another and it is rooted in a truth. Um, most of the Christians who don't like me, and there's a lot of them, okay? I don't know why. Uh, but it seems to be, and I don't know, maybe they really do like me, but it just seems that there's some tension at times with some other fellow believers that I talk to at times. It doesn't seem to be, you know, that I didn't, you know, take a shower that day and smell funny or, or have some weird thing. It seems to be a disagreement in the fundamental truth of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross and that his word has been given to us and we need to believe it and receive it as it is without our interpretive um, guidance on our, from our minds onto the scripture. The scripture should interpret us. And the tensions that I have with other believers usually are a result of a difference of understanding of what the truth is. It's not that we're mean to each other. As a matter of fact, we're very polite to each other. Um, if you find yourself in a place where there is a lack of affection, the place not to go is, the, is not to go to the behavior that you all demonstrate towards each other. It's to go to a place that, hey man, do we really believe the truth together? Do we understand it together? Truth and love are connected. If you struggle with love it's possible that you're really struggling with truth. If you're struggling with the truth, it's possible that you don't understand what biblical love looks like, which Jesus demonstrated. And let me tell you, folks, if Jesus didn't tell people hard truth, I don't know who did, right? He did it in a a way that was perfect in the situation he was in. But there are many stories in the Bible, sometimes very stern, very abrupt, very blunt, Okay? Sometimes a little bit more kind, but still very truthful. Woman at the well comes to mind. The story of him meeting her there and calling her out on her stuff and being truthful about it, but also offering forgiveness, offering the living water that only he can provide. Truth and love are connected. Second teaching in verse 2 of this particular uh, couple of verses. Truth dwells in Christians. I'm going to have fun with this one. I'm going to have fun with this one. Truth dwells in Christians. Now, to, to start with this point, we've got to answer this question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Like, have you ever, like, dialed it all the way back to the beginning and asked that question, what is a Christian? Do you know that apparently, some studies say as, as many as 60 to 70% of Americans call themselves Christians? And yet we still have people who don't know how to drive. I mean, figure that one out. Should be just a standard. If you're a Christian, you know how to drive a little bit better than the rest of us. Okay. Okay. The the study also goes in to say that 60 to 70% of Americans call themselves Christians, and they do it because they were born in America. Oh, okay. That's what a Christian is. If you were born in America, you are a Christian. If you're born in Saudi Arabia, you're a Muslim. If you're born in Nepal, you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, uh, in India, a Hindu. 
That's just your birthright. Where you're born, the geography where you're born, is what religion you are. Folks, that is not a Christian. A Christian, according to Scripture, is one who has been saved, regenerated, uh, renewed, restored, redeemed, made new by Jesus. You did not do that on your own. Jesus sought you out, pursued you. The old guys used to call it like the hound of heaven. Okay, Came after you, saved you, regenerated you, renewed you, made you a new person. Um, that's what a Christian is. It's not one who grew up in a Christian home or in a Christian country. A Christian is one who has been saved by Jesus. And Scripture says that the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you testifies to the truth of, am I a Christian or not? The Holy Spirit inside of you says, yes. If he's inside of you, for sure he says yes. If there's no Holy Spirit testifying to that truth, um, it's possible that you have not been regenerated, made new by Jesus Christ. So a Christian is one who's saved by Jesus. And, excuse me, if you've been saved or rescued by Jesus, then according to verse 2 of this passage, truth abides or dwells in you. Really interesting word, abide, or or the word dwell is is what some uh, translations might use, but this word abides in you. This is the thing. If Jesus saved you and regenerated you and you did nothing to earn that or deserve that or or, uh, start that process, he did that on his own. It also is true that when the truth abides in you, the literal meaning of this word is something has overtaken your house. Um, We have a, a dog who's a little bit older, going on, I think, 10 years, and bless his heart, just... You know, he's got issues with the bathroom thing, okay? So something has overtaken our house, and this is a horrible analogy. Um, it's, it's a smell, okay? Now, think of that. I'm sorry. It's the best I could come up with. Think of that as what happens when the truth abides or dwells in you. I can do very little to stop the smell of my dog in my house from smelling up my house. I can only spray so much Febreze. If you want some good stock, buy some Febreze because I'm, I'm putting them in business, baby. I'm, we're taking care of it. But that smell is really hard. Now, when the truth abides in you, it's there. It ain't going anywhere because the Spirit of God has put it there. It dwells in you. It is over taken your house it is persistent it's persistent it continues to exist is what persistent means it's growing it's growing it's getting bigger the truth of god is 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 expanding your understanding of who god is and what he's done for you is growing it's beautiful you have a sense of beauty when you think of the truth that dwells inside of you and it is foundational Meaning nothing else determines what the world should look like, how you should act in the world, what your worship should look like. It's all the truth of Jesus Christ that dwells in you. You cannot get rid of it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't get rid of it. But you can fight it, right? You can fight it. 
Most of my, most of my conversations when it comes to counseling issues or, or just theological questions or whatever it is, my interaction with people comes down, with Christians, comes down to this very thing. They can't get rid of the truth, but they want to fight it. And John says in this passage that if the truth dwells in Christians, love will dwell in them as well. You can't get rid of it, and your struggles with the truth are not rooted in the truth not being true. Like, I'm pretty passionate about this because when I look at the state uh, of the American church, okay, I'm here as a missionary. This church is a mission. We're to go out preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, talk about Jesus, let people know they can have a relationship with Jesus. We're in America. This is our mission field. Oh, by the way, second or third largest mission field in the world, right here. You, if you're called to go to you know, a far off country, God bless you, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about that. But all of us are called here. It says in Acts that you're here for a reason. God preordained it. You're here to be a missionary to this city and, and we have an issue with trying to change the truth, but it's really not going to change. It's going to abide in you. It's going to dwell in you. It's going to grow in you. It's going to be beautiful, foundational, persistent. And when we struggle with it, it's not because the truth is not true. It's because we have a heart that is convicted of what is true, and we want to change it, nuance it, or redefine it. Folks, truth cannot be changed, and it will overtake the Christian life. There's a lot of hope there. Now, there's a lot of hope there if you're willing to relent to Jesus as Lord and say, you put the truth in my life and give me the strength to obey it. And when I fail and when I disobey, give me the strength to come to you in repentance and belief and know that you've forgiven me. Now and forevermore, I'm forgiven. If Jesus lives inside of me and put that truth deep in me, have that truth just have its tentacles, grab every area of my mind and my heart so that I can be a greater follower of Christ, not because I can do that in my own flesh, but because I've been called to grow into the image of Christ-likeness. I don't want to fight the truth. Our struggles with truth are not rooted in the truth not being true. They're rooted in a heart that wants to change, nuance, or redefine it. Truth will not be changed, and it will overtake your life. If you struggle against it, it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. And I I prayed um, for, for this moment that God would bring into your mind something that you're fighting him on, that you know is true. And you're saying, no, God, I want to nuance that. I want to redefine that. I want to change that. And I'm going to go to the Christian bookstore, and I'm going to buy a book that tells me how to do all of those things, how to nuance it, how to change it, maybe how to redefine it. You can't change the truth, and it's going to overtake your life because it is dwelling in you. There's another teaching here in verse 3. Truth and love allows us grace, mercy, and peace. Now notice, John words it in such a way that these things, grace, mercy, peace, are given by God and they are not earned by us. And they are promises to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, 
he says this, and this is one of those things that's rooted when a promise is made and you don't feel like it's happening. Well, that's because the promise is rooted to, to hit our mind, which can sometimes govern our heart better than our heart can govern itself. So this truth of grace, mercy, and peace is rooted in our intellect, in our mind, and it establishes a holistic heart, which is your emotional and spiritual center, according to Proverbs, and it produces love. So the promises that God make uh, or have made and continue to make to us, grace, mercy, peace in this situation, are rooted in truth. It's going to happen. You're going to have grace and peace and mercy. Even when you don't feel like it, you're still experiencing God's grace and mercy and peace. And when that happens and when you're trusting in that, you're you're deciding in your mind that that is true about God. It will establish in you a holistic heart that will produce love. Last teaching. Verse 4. Truth and love are very practical together. He uses the example of this woman with her children. This is a single mom living in first century Roman Empire type of situation. Probably a a, a widow. Maybe some people said that she was a wealthy widow, that her husband maybe left her a big estate. Others people say she was like many other widows of the time struggling to make ends meet. Um, Regardless, I, I tend to think it's the second one. Even in those situations... John could see that the truth that she is teaching to her children is producing love in her children. And it says clearly in here that they are, quote unquote, walking in the truth. Very practical example of parenting. That Christianity is a journey in truth and love. And as we are experiencing that journey, our parenting even is affected. So John says that a Christian is naturally, but not perfectly, going to grow in truth and love And it's going to spread to others around them. That includes other Christians. And it can include other people who aren't believers in Jesus Christ. So if you're approaching Christ in truth and love, it's going to produce in you a a Christianity that is naturally, but not perfectly, growing and spreading to others around you. It says here that uh, John says, and this is interesting, some of the children are walking in the truth. I always wonder, what about the other children? doesn't tell us, but some of them are walking in the truth. And this, this phrase literally means they are behaving or walking around like Christians. Like, we have to understand that there is a profound change when Jesus saves you, regenerates you, renews you, restores you, redeems you, you begin to have different behaviors, different actions, different desires, different thoughts, and it affects every area of life. These children are behaving or really literally walking around like Christians. So what does a walking around Christian look like? Number one, they know the truth. They know the truth. Mom, in this case, has taught them their Bible. Now, they didn't have the Bible that we have because John was writing it in the midst of this discussion about this lady. But we have it now. 
Um, I'm sure John taught many things about Jesus in the churches that he traveled to. He wrote letters. He wrote the Gospel of John. I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff to teach uh, the children and to teach the people of this church the truth. And so John says that these uh, folks are walking around like Christians because, number one, they know the truth. They know the truth. Your kids need to know the truth. For your kids to know the truth, you need to know the truth. And if you've been here for a minute, you know that we're going to challenge you to come here on Sunday and hear the Word of God preached so that you can grow and understand what God has for you in terms of what the Word says. We want you to have family devotions with your kids. We want you to be a part of a city group. We want you to expose yourself to different classes and opportunities to learn. We had a fantastic women's training day yesterday, right, ladies? Yeah. Um, those are all opportunities to know the truth. A follower of Christ is thirsty for the truth of God. Now, in every season of life, no. I've been a Christian since I was three, four years old. Jesus saved me. I know it happened in in this moment that I was in when I was that young. I'm now 47. Do the math. 44 years. 44, 43 years of being a Christian Not every day and every minute of that has me been desiring and thirsting after the truth of God. Now why is that? Because my heart, like your heart, is deceitful and wicked above all things, as Scripture tells us, and I want to do my own thing. I want to do my own thing. And when the truth of God comes and says, ah, that's not what God says in this situation, I'm like, well, can I have a few days to fill that? Maybe come back in a few days and convict me of that sin. We're not going to have a thirst for the knowledge of God's truth every minute of every day. But it is a more common experience than the alternative. To say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I don't care what Jesus said. I don't care what scriptures say. I don't care what the truth is. I'm going to do my own thing, make it up as I go, because I want to feel it more than know it. If you're a walking around Christian, you know the truth. You are knowing the truth. Walking around Christian, what else? They've been saved by Jesus. (laughs) Shocker. A a walking around Christian has actually been saved by Jesus. And I I bring that up because I think sometimes people um, maybe have deceived themselves into thinking that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit of God is not testifying to that truth. They may have checked a box on a church pamphlet. They may have gone to a class. They may have, uh, you know, said a particular prayer that they thought would, you know, be the magic words to get them into the kingdom. But they've never met Jesus in a situation where Jesus has spoke to their heart and said, I'm saving you. I want you to be my child. And they have repented and believed in the truth of the gospel And Jesus has saved them in that moment. If that's you, when we come to communion and you've always thought, man, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I've always been a follower of Jesus Christ. But the the testifying of the Holy Spirit of God isn't there, isn't true in your life and in your heart. Maybe God is saying right now, repent and believe in the gospel. Don't believe in your own efforts to save you in your behavior modification Believe in the power of Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and he will save you and the Holy Spirit of God will live in you. 
walking around Christians know the truth and they've been saved by Jesus. Lastly, and most importantly, walking around Christians are applying Jesus to all of life. You're applying Jesus to all of life. That's tough. It's tough. Let me, let me give you a, a personal example of how tough that can be. I have the opportunity to uh, coach a little youth football team. Have you guys ever heard this before? Um, sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes challenging. And sometimes in the back of my mind, I ask myself that question, are you coaching these little 6th grade, 11-year-olds like Jesus would coach them? Do you even know what that would look like? Have you thought about that? Have you prayed about that? Have you considered what would that look like? Have you considered what it would look like if Jesus was sitting in your cubicle? Actually, Jesus would never sit in a cubicle because that's close to hell. Um, (laughs) But if he was sitting in your cubicle... How would he answer that phone call? How would he type out that email? How would he respond to that somewhat difficult boss? Or if you're a boss, how would Jesus be a leader in your company? How would he manage people? How would he relate to to the folks that answer to you and are responsible to you and you have power over how would, how would Jesus go to the gym? How would Jesus, you know, have a house? Like, what would it look like? Would it, you know, would it be well decorated? I don't know. I mean, how, how would Jesus respond to what the ills of our culture are presenting to us? Like, would Jesus be concerned with what's going on in our culture, and not only would he be concerned, how would he act towards them? If Jesus was a father of your children, how would he demonstrate a love and a truthfulness in that relationship with them? A walking around Christian is applying Jesus to everyday life. This is an opportunity because we're going to take communion now. And as we take communion, we are, we're remembering, because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering a body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you know Jesus, the truth of God is dwelling in you. It is a persistent, growing, never-ending process by which the truth of God is growing inside of you. That's an amazing gift, and it was paid for through the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood. The journey of Christianity, then, if he did that for us, is applying Jesus to all of life. Don't come to the table today until you have had the opportunity to say, Jesus, where am I not applying you to life? Is it my bank account? Is it a relationship? Is it my work? Is it my recreation? What is it? How how am I applying myself to that area instead of applying Jesus to that area? 
and then come to the table and know that his body broken and blood shed was for the forgiveness of that sin. And through your own willpower, you will never overcome that, but through the power of the cross, through Jesus saying, it is finished, you can have victory. Let's pray. Father, um,